Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you very much that your word is powerful and active in our lives. We thank you that through the work of your son, uh, you have given us new hearts that um, love your word and we pray that you would help us uh, to love it uh, by understanding and desiring to apply it and learning about what it means to live before the Gentiles in an excellent way. Um, we pray that you would please uh, be with us as we uh, have our discussion today. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, well, for those of you who uh, might not have been here or haven't been here for a few weeks or haven't been here for all the weeks, we are working through First Peter. This is our Sunday school class in First Peter. And uh, our theme uh, is... Uh, suffering, trusting, and doing what is right. That's the overall theme of the book. And over the last four or five weeks, we've really kind of barely touched on that. The Apostle Peter has been setting up everything so that from today through pretty much the rest of the class, we'll be really focused a lot on what it means uh, to suffer, to trust, and to do what is right, and how those things work together. Uh, today, what we're going to do is find that this, this finds favor with God. So just as a quick review then, if we look at the last four weeks, the main focus has been that the Apostle Peter is teaching us that we are children of God and a holy priesthood. And those two, if you wanted to boil it all down, those, those are the things that we are. And that's going to have a huge implication for what we do so uh, a few weeks ago, we talked about the fact that the Father has given us new life. We are born again. It's not just that he presented some truth to us and we intellectually accepted those things, but actually that we are born again. We're changed. We're new because we're born. And we're born again into an inheritance because we now have God as our Father. We're born again into a, a living hope, one that we know is eternal because it's imperishable, and right now, it doesn't look like that, right? Because we live here in this world. Although we have a hope, right? And you don't hope for what you see. So we don't see this inheritance yet. So it's over here. But where we are right now, we are in a place where we know we are children of God. But we don't see that yet. We have faith. And it's actually that faith that God has given to us that he's using to protect us. He protects us through faith so that we would be saved on that last day in, Christ, in, in the revelation of Christ. Um, that faith, though, is not one that is uh, a weak faith. It's, it's a tried faith. It's a tested faith. It's one that's exercised. The reason that we go through a lot of trials, which he pointed out, that right now you're undergoing fiery trials, he tells to the people he's writing to, so that your faith would be tested just like gold. The only difference is it's even better because we know that gold can be purified. You put it under fiery, under a lot of heat, it gets purified. All the bad stuff rises to the top, it gets wiped off, and you have something pure. But gold is perishable. It's just like the rest of the stuff of this world. We know that it will come to an end. But your faith is even more precious because it is imperishable. And it has as its object Jesus Christ and that eternal inheritance that we have. So therefore, he followed that up with that we need to fix our minds completely on that hope. It's true that we have that hope, but what do we do with that? We have to fix our minds completely on that hope. He told us to gird up the loins of our mind, right? That's to fix our minds, to, to set our minds on it. 
because there, is, um, there are so many trials and the things that go on here in this world that are going to pull us away. But we're children of God and therefore as obedient children, we must be holy, right? Even though we're in this world right now, we're in the world, but we are not of this world. We have a different hope. We have an imperishable hope out here, but we're living in this perishable time right now. And we have to, by fixing our hope, we're gonna live right now as children who have an inheritance. We're gonna be different from this world. We're holy, we're set apart. And we're gonna therefore live in this world right now. The main um, command that we have in this, that section we talked about was that we live now in the fear of God. As our father, we live in the fear of God because we were, we have been made children, we have been set aside, we've been redeemed from all this junk, but what have we been redeemed by? Did he pay, did he pay 10 bucks to redeem us? Did he pay a million dollars? He paid beyond that, he paid with the precious blood of Christ, right? It's precious in the sight of God. And so we've been redeemed from the feudal way of life. We used to live because you inherit your life from your father. It is a truth. It is an absolute truth. It doesn't matter what the world tells you. Your father is important because you inherit your life from your father. And we lived in a feudal way, but now we are to conduct ourselves in our way of life as obedient children to God. Now, not only that, but we have, as children, been born of the imperishable seed, the word. God has spoken his word to us and he's given us his written word. And that written word is a seed planted in us that cannot die. And therefore it will grow up into life. And his word also is pure milk. And so by this, because we live imperishably and we have this pure milk, we are to grow up into love for each other. That is, that is the first uh, thing that comes out of this imperishable life that we have is that we have a love for each other. And each other means all the other children of God, right? We're to love each other and in fact to grow in love. We're to love each other fervently to a burning love for one another knowing that our lives together will not end. And that is amazing. I mean, that's, that has struck me over and over again about how amazing that is. Our lives together, it's not simply that your life won't end. We do have eternal life, but our life together will not end because we are now being drawn to Christ who is what? He is the precious cornerstone. God has chosen him from eternity past. We are part of this eternal plan. You know, last week we talked about this eternal plan. It's, it's giant, it's huge. You can feel like, um, wow, that's just beyond comprehension. But what God has done is actually to place us within this plan. We live as part of his plan. And that plan, his eternal plan, is that Jesus Christ would come as the, the rock upon which he would do something, that he would build us all together, that he would place that rock as a cornerstone and he would build us up into a building together, placing all of us together exactly how he wants to. He's placing us all together and he's not only doing that but placing us as a royal priesthood that we would offer sacrifices to God. We are the fulfillment of the ages, right? What God has always desired is a priesthood that would offer sacrifices. 
the Old Testament times, God blessed them because he gave that to the, to the Jews. No other nation was like that. But how much more has he blessed us? Because now we are a holy nation. We can offer up spiritual sacrifices to God. And part of that is to live out God's eternal plan, which is to offer up the offering of the Gentiles, all those around us who God is, using, is calling He was kind enough to call us out of death and now he's using us to call others out of death, right? So so this is is the the flow of what uh, the apostle Peter has taught so far. Now just to get us caught up then, um, as as this magnificent temple, we are proclaiming his excellencies. Last week we ended on this verse about how we proclaim his excellencies. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So the, uh, so the apostle Peter is writing because his, the, the people to whom he's writing are being slandered as evildoers by those who are outside, okay? And Anyone who is a faithful Christian will be slandered as an evildoer. It's not, there is mocking, you know, there is just mocking like, oh, you you live your own stupid life, why would you do that? But that's not really what he's talking about here. This is the beginning of the main theme of this book, which is suffering. And this is a type of suffering that is a very real type of suffering. It's to be slandered as an evildoer. It's not simply, again, that we're, we're, uh, that what we do is, a waste, but it's actually, according to those around us, it is, it is actually evil. You know, we get general slander. There's kind of a general slander. Um, my, my brother-in-law one time at a family gathering basically said something like, well, you know, you religious people, generally religious people are a bunch of hypocrites, but you guys uh, live out, you guys live it out by doing foster care. Right? I mean, it's like there's this general slander on us. But this, this was played out by the good deeds that we do outside. There, were, there was uh, someone who didn't believe who did claim. He said, well, you know, he gave glory to God. Something's different there. But the general gist is that all you religious people are a bunch of hypocrites. That's a general slander. But there are a lot more specific slanders. Um, you know, I've received... The, the biggest, well, one of the specific slanders that I've received, for instance, is um, in teaching at IU, uh, sometimes I'll basically say something very evil like God created the world. Um, and, and that is evil, right? That's not just silly. Some people just see that as silly, but I had a student who wrote later on and kind of basically demanded from my department that they kick me out because I'm leading people astray right, because for her, we know science is our savior. Everyone needs a savior. So if you claim that Jesus Christ is a savior, if you claim that God created the world, then you are undercutting the the youth of America. They will no longer be able to trust in science, and and we know that science is our savior, so you are evil. And how much more does that happen all the time? And what happens when you don't participate in a wedding? You know, it's a, in your family, it may, for some immoral reason or um, for whatever reason, you know that you can't really participate. That is spoken as evil because we know that 
Family is more important than your religious stuff. What about uh, when we say that homosexuality is wrong? If you make that statement, you're a hater, you're against society, you're actually speaking evil. What happens when you teach that, um, that wives should submit to their husbands? That is evil, right? In the light, in what they will say, it's not just that that's kind of a, well, that's a weird way to look at it. It's actually to say that that is evil. That is a wrong thing to teach. Um, what happens when you spank your children? You're evil, that is evil. And so there is a slander that's constantly upon us that um, is not simply that what we do is weird, but that it is actually evil. And so we have a, a choice in how we're going to approach that, and we need to have uh, today wisdom from God about what it means and the power that we have to do this. Because it is actually effective. Your suffering is actually effective. If, of course, this all assumes that you are being slandered, which as a Christian, as a faithful Christian, and the purpose of Peter here is to teach us that this isn't something weird, but this is something to be expected, and in fact, it is God's plan that you suffer. But not, for, not because he's a masochist, right? But for a reason. That in this case, we see that it will actually be for the benefit of those around us, because although they slander us as evildoers, they may, because of our good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Um, there are a couple of ways that, that you can interpret that, of course, and they're both right. That, that means when Jesus comes back, the day of his visitation at the end, all men will glorify God, right? And they will glorify God knowing that, that those who obeyed him, having observed those things, they will give glory to God. But that's actually not the, the way that... Um, I don't think that that's the main thing, way that we should interpret this. Um, Calvin actually interprets this, and Matthew Henry, and lots of people you might respect as commentators, they all uh, say that, that the way that we really need to think about this in light of Peter's context is that whenever Christ comes and he shines his light on us and we come to knowledge of him because he's worked, that is the day of his visitation. And so as we do this, this is actually ev- evangelistic. This is an evangelistic thing, and it is our behavior. Last week, uh, Stephen pointed out rightly that it is, it, it, we can't use um, this idea of our behavior as evangelism to uh, therefore say we don't have to actually say anything, right? I'm not going to actually talk about God. I'm just going to behave well, and hopefully everyone will get it. And that's not his point here. But what his point is, is that as you are slandered as evildoers, the type of good that you live out, if you're living out a good that is hated by the world, that is evangelistic. And it will work in power. It will work as we continue to follow in his steps. Now the question is, what does it really mean to keep our behavior excellent among the Gentiles? So, we're in this section now, he's going to expand this. He's going to take a broader look at this. Um, so we can answer questions like, what does it look like to keep our behavior excellent? Or um, more, we have a little bit here about what God's purpose is, but what are God's purposes, his big purposes, that we keep our, excellent, our behavior excellent among the Gentiles? And what help do we have to do this? Or is this just an impossible task? Well, it's not. And let's read today's um, passage. 1 Peter 2, 13 through 25. 
Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if, for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if, when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you are, were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. So we are commanded to submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Um, again, I'm not going to uh, go against what Stephen taught last week in his sermon, right? That's, I think that last week when he uh, said that there are times for civil disobedience, uh, that's absolutely true, and I agree with what he said. But we do have to understand that, this, that civil disobedience and not obeying the evil things that the government says that we must do, not doing those things, that is all grounded in the assumption of what? First, that this is our first attitude, one that we submit ourselves for the Lord's sake to what he has established, right? That's our first attitude is not one of rebellion. Our first attitude is one of submission. And we are called to submit to the government. I see a lot of head shaking out there, right? That's good stuff, right? Submit to the government. They, they, you know, they're, uh, they do lots of good things for us, right? Well, Actually, they do, right? One of the things that he wants to point out here, and one of the things that we have to do, especially in a time like this, is not get into um, this attitude. Uh, it is true that there are many things that the, the federal government, state government, local government do that are ungodly. Absolutely true. How about your family? Anything your family does that's ungodly? Your family's perfect, right? Because what we're doing is we're holding the government to the same standard of ourselves, right? That works. It turns out that actually the government, our government that God has given us is is actually pretty good in a lot of ways, right? It kind of turns out that they actually do punish evildoers and praise those who do what is right an awful lot. You know, Calvin wanted to point out that uh, no matter how bad your government is, Guess what? It's a lot better than anarchy. 
because imagine what would happen if the government wasn't doing what God called it to do. Okay, it does do a lot of things. You all made it here safely today because they went out and salted the roads for you. They did a lot of things that allowed you to do things to worship God today, such as building the roads in the first place. Such, you know, there are lots of things that they've done that are God-ordained. And because we do this, of course, for the Lord's sake, and this is the attitude that we need to have in approaching government, right? It is for the Lord's sake, whether it's the president, right? Whether it's kings, the highest, the supreme is really what that literally means, the supreme, whatever the supreme is. And then all those who are like under governors. So whatever, whoever they are, all of these, their job has been ordained by God. This is not a human, when he says human institution, he doesn't mean that it was humanly devised, right? But rather that it is uh, run by humans, right? We participate in it. And so this human institution is a good thing. Why? Because God ordained it. And so what he has done in ordaining it is really to uh, allow us to praise him for the good things that he has done through, through the government. Okay, so I, I think, I don't know, I, maybe I'm just speaking to myself here, but I'm, you know, I tend to get down on government and things that just look at all the negative things when instead of thinking about what, God has actually done for us and to praise God. You know, I can't, uh, I can never read that passage anymore unless I think about what Thomas Hobbes said about without government, you know, life is nasty, brutish, and short. (laughs) Without government, life is nasty, brutish, and short, which is absolutely true, right? Imagine without, without government. And so this is a great gift of God that he has given to us. Now, when, when he did this for us, um, he uh, has also, though, allowed us to now have some kind of interaction. What should our interaction be with a God-ordained institution, but one that really isn't perfect? Um, he has a will for us in doing this, and this is the will of God, that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. As I've meditated on this, I think one of the things that I really look forward to in heaven is that there will be neither Fox News nor CNN. (laughs) Because what happens whenever the church does not live out, does not actually live in the culture in such a way that it transforms the culture? Guess what happens? Lots of of ignorance of foolish men, right? Lots of it. And we live in a society that God has said, this, you want the natural consequences of no God in society? Have at it. Go ahead and speak your mind now. I will be quiet for a while. You speak your mind. But this is not the will of God, right? What is the will of God? The will of God is that we live in such a way that we silence the ignorance of foolish men. Now, what this means, though, for us is what this assumes is that we are culture changers, right? That we are engaged in culture. Our submission and our works have to be able to be seen by these men. 
if they're not be able to be seen, then it's not something that we're actually doing. We can't hide, right? It's the natural tendency of Christians, of certain groups of Christians especially, to see the wickedness of the culture, to see bad things, and what's the response to that? Retreat so that we can be safe right here. But that is not the will of God. What is the will of God? Be out there. Because when they observe our good works, it will silence the foolishness. And that's one of the things that um, the elders have recently um, appointed an outreach committee that you heard about at the last um, uh, congregational meeting. And it's one of the things that we always have to be thoughtful for because it's something that naturally, as, as a group of Christians, that, that we've seen, what, what did Peter talk about? We're all children of God. We've been built into a, a, a holy temple. We've been brought together as children and family. It's a natural thing to then try to withdraw. But that's exactly the opposite. Why did he build us up as a temple? So that it would be like buried off somewhere? No, he's raised us up as a temple so that everyone can look at it and proclaim the excellencies of God, what he's done. And so in uh, the uh, outreach committee, we're starting to talk about ways that we can speak truth and be engaged, but also simply do good, right? That's what we're called to do, to do good for our community, to do good for those around us. There are lots of ways that you can think of to love the people around you, right? And we're gonna do this as a church, but it's also a challenge to each one of us. How are you out there actually loving somebody? How are you doing good in front of those who are silly talkers in such a way that they're, that they're able to see your uh, submission to government, that you are actually a team player, right? You're not just some a fly-by-night rebel, right? But you're, I'm here, I'm committed to Bloomington. I'm part of Bloomington, I'm not over here on the outside looking down on Bloomington. I am Bloomington. Here I am. That is outreach because now what I do as someone who is from Bloomington, as a Bloomingtonian, I live in a way that I trust God, especially when those around me slander. I'm going to continue to do what is good because that's the way that we actually proclaim his excellencies and silence the ignorance of foolish men. And how do we do that? We're going to live as free men who are bond slaves of God. We have a lot of freedom. So uh, we are free. Because of what Christ has done, we're free. We have a freedom of conscience. We we can do many things that um, are um, what the, the government says, no, I, I can use a straw. I can drink out of a straw if I want to because I have freedom to do that, right? I, but what does it mean to live before them in such a way that, uh, that I'm submissive to the government? You know what? Straws really aren't a big deal. I can I cannot have a straw. Why is that? Because I'm a bond slave of Christ and Jesus didn't put me here so that I can drink out of straws. He brought me here so that I can speak his truth and that others would proclaim his excellencies, that I would live in such a way and do what is right so that others would then turn to him. That is what our attitude has to be. We have got to transform in our minds thinking about how we are going to honor all people how we're gonna love the brotherhood. You know, we, this is us, we're the brotherhood. We love one another, and that's true. But we have to be thinking outward. We have to honor all men. We have to honor the king, 
And we're going to do that if we fear God because God has put us here particularly with a purpose. It is his will. Now that also goes into the way that you work, right? If you have a job that is the type of job where you have an employer or clients or anyone else, you are in a sense a servant. Now this is not, this is not a slave. This is like, this word is uh, like household servant. So this is like employee, right? That's how we would read this today. Employees, be submissive to your masters with all respect. This, this, employee, this household employee is then going to be one who has to deal with other people, and that means dealing with the Gentiles, right? If you live out there and you're working out there and you're part of the world, you're going to be having the Gentiles, right, the, the non-believers out there as your bosses, as your clients. And some of them are going to be good and some are gonna be unreasonable. And what that unreasonable means, it, it's a little stronger than that. It's pretty much crooked and perverse. That's what that word is, crooked. You're gonna have to deal with some crooked people and those who are perverse. And so we, of course, working, we're not going, we, we have God as our, uh, as, as our God, not our boss. And so we're not gonna do evil things. But there are those who are perverse. How, in what kind of cases are you going to be submissive to them even though they're perverse? I, I, I think what I want to catch there is the idea of the boss that demands that we build bricks without straw. That's kind of the, because it's right for him to demand that we build bricks. He's not asking for something wrong, right? He's hiring us to do what is right. But in many ways, they can often do things in such a way that it's unreasonable, that it's perverse, that it's not good, that it's not, not someone who is good and gentle, but someone who's harsh. And if you do what God wants you to do, you will suffer. You will suffer. You know, this is the, this is the, the theme that we have, that this is about God, right? It is for the sake of conscience toward God that a person bears up under sorrow. Because ultimately, when we have this suffering, it's easy to get trapped into the idea that it's, this is all about me and my boss or about me and my client, right? But that's not really what it's about. How do you engage with that person, that crooked person? Well, you have to understand that really who you're engaging with is God. Right? Because it is for the sake of conscience toward God that you do the things that you do, that the way that you deal with them. Because what is the ultimate purpose? The ultimate purpose is the proclamation of God's excellencies. That is his will. His will is that you proclaim how excellent God is in every interaction you have with your boss, with every interaction you have in the world, no matter who it is, that you proclaim the excellencies of God. And if we do this, if we do these things, if we, if we treat them with all respect for the sake of conscience toward God, then we're going to be able to win them, right? Because God has promised, right? He's given us this, that this is one of the things that he's calling us to do. But not only that, it is also for us too. This is for our benefit because this is the testing of our faith. If you, if, of course, we can do what is wrong and suffer for it, 
if we try, if we're called to, to do a job and we complain about it and we slack off and we're lazy and then we're reprimanded by our boss and we use the excuse, hey, you know what? Well, that, that guy's a jerk anyway. And, you know, that's unreasonable. He's asked me to do something unreasonable. And you're going to suffer for that, right? That's what credit is there if you sin and are harshly treated and then you endure it with patience. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, then this finds favor with God. The question is, I mean, is that what you're after? When, when you're at, at work, when you're dealing with clients, is that what you're after? Are you trying to find favor with them or are you trying to find favor with God? When you have to, you're a teacher and you have to deal with all those nasty parents, you're trying to find favor with them. You're trying to find favor with God. When you're dealing with clients who are unreasonable, when you're dealing with someone who's ripping you off because they're not paying you when they should be, are you dealing with them or are you dealing with God? Are you trying to find favor with them or favor with God? He's the one who's created us. This isn't just stoicism, right? This isn't some kind of stoicism. This is not just like, oh, I'm just gonna put up with it. But this is what it means to suffer according to the will of God. We suffer when we do what is right in his sight as opposed to the opposite of suffering according to the will of God is to sin and suffer for it, right? We, we don't, um, there's, there's no such thing in an ultimate sense of being outside of God's hidden will. God's will is accomplished, his great hidden will, but his particular will for us that we are able to see and that we walk in, those things, we know what is right and what is wrong, And if we do what is right, then we suffer according to God's will. And if we suffer for doing wrong, then we suffer not according to God's will. Either way, you're going to suffer. But there is a kind of suffering that according to God's will finds favor with God. And that's what we're called to do. Um, You know, this, this might seem kind of impossible, right? It's pretty difficult. But the Lord is very kind to us in giving us now uh, three, three things that are gonna help us with this impossible task. Okay, the first one is to remind us that we have been called for this purpose. We've been called for this purpose. And we're not the first ones who have ever been called to suffer for the sake of another, right? This isn't an accident. When you do what is right and you suffer, it's not an accident. You have been called according to this purpose. It's God's purpose. That is enough to buoy you up a little bit, right? To know that this isn't some accident. It's not random. It's not something that I'm going to try to engage with and just get through. I'm not just going to muddle through. But this is to know that this is according to the will of God. But not only that is to know that someone else has gone ahead of us too, right? Jesus Christ is an example for us in this. This is gonna help us because, boy, you know, if Jesus did it, I'm not too good to do it too, right? If Jesus did it, I mean, that's, that is what, there isn't a better example than Jesus Christ himself. And he shows us what this really means because, you know, well, sure, I, I mean, I'll suffer a little bit, you know, I'll, I'll, put up with stuff a little bit and maybe I can, you know, be, uh, I can do what's right. But that's not really what the example is. What is the example? He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. 
And he wasn't simply asked to do things that were unreasonable. He was reviled, right? So sometimes we'll, engage, we'll be reviled as well. But that's the extreme side, right? Anything that God has called us to do, it's, and it might seem unreasonable to us, it might be something that, is, um, you know, that, that, is, that we're being slandered for as evildoers. But he was reviled, not only as doing what was wrong, but he himself as evil. Jesus Christ was reviled. He, he, all pointed, all the teachers pointed to him and said, not just that he did evil things, but that he was the son of Satan. And while being reviled, he didn't revile in return. While suffering, he didn't utter threats. He certainly could have uttered threats, right, without any type of, without being wrong in any way. He could have been on the cross saying, yep, you, just you wait, just you wait, all right? But that was not what he did. Rather, what did he do? Rather than reviling, he kept entrusting himself to God. This is what suffering, what has to come with our suffering is the entrusting of ourselves to God. It's not suffering in a stoic way, a suffering in a way that we kind of put up with it for a while, but the, the godly response of suffering is to acknowledge that it comes from God himself, and therefore, what do we do with our suffering with ourselves? We give ourselves, we entrust our cause to God, and that's what Jesus Christ did. He asked God to forgive them. He entrusted himself to a faithful creator who, uh, in doing what was right, that's how he entrusted himself. He entrusted himself to him who judges rightly. And so we have a great example so that we're also able to do as he called us to do. We're also able to suffer. But we have way more than an example. If all we had was an example, you know, lots of people believe that Jesus was a good example. But we have far more than a good example. We actually have the power to do this because we are new creations. We're different. It's not just that we needed an example to get us, enough of, of, get us enough of our own like willpower to kind of boost us up over the top so that we can kind of hang in there for a little while. But it's something completely different. Not only did Jesus' suffering serve as an example, but primarily he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. That is the objective work of Christ. That is our justification. That was something outside of ourselves. We didn't choose that 2,000 years ago, right? We didn't have anything to do with that, but he objectively did something. He bore our sins in his body. Well, what does that mean for us right now? It means everything because of the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has applied those things so that now we are in Christ. And if Christ died to sin, then what? We've died to sin. We're dead to sin. So that he bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Is this a metaphor in your life? Is it a metaphor? Or is it something that you believe that God actually did? I mean, do you believe that you're dead to sin? What do dead people do? Not too much. They're dead to sin. We're dead to sin. That, that is not who we are. 
In fact, we are born of an imperishable seed so that what? It's not simply that we're dead to sin, but now we are alive to righteousness. And we know this because it was by his wounds that we're healed. His wounds were very real, right? Being dead to sin and being alive to God, being alive to righteousness is no less real than his wounds. That's the point, right? His wounds, the stripes that he bore, not reviling, but instead taking the lash, not speaking back to those who mocked him on the cross, but appealing to God. The very reality of what he did 2,000 years ago is what makes the reality of our lives that we are dead to sin and alive to righteousness. And so we not only have the example of Christ, but we have the power of Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit. He's accomplished what we could not accomplish. So guess what we can do now? We can suffer and entrust ourselves to God in doing good before the Gentiles. We're a holy temple. We're a kingdom of priests offering up ourselves as living sacrifices, offering up those around us as sacrifices to God that he would um, enjoy the, the proclamation, that we would proclaim him and that he would enjoy the glory. Okay, so this week, know what Jesus did for you and live before for the sake of conscience, for the sake of conscience toward God, for the sake of Christ himself, live out there. Be out there, do what is good. It's okay to be slandered for doing evil because you're doing what is good. Entrust yourself to God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that in your uh, word to us, you have uh, not only given us an example, but you have given us your living word. Um, That imperishable seed um, bought by the blood of Christ that we would be born again We thank you that you're a father to us. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to walk in Christ's example and that we would love those around us. Being thankful for the good things that you have given us in uh, our government, for the um, good employment that you've given to us. But Lord, we pray that when we're slandered, that we would entrust our souls to you and that we would continue to do what is right. We pray in Christ's name, amen.